When I was a young boy, I went on my first hunting trip. I don't know exactly how old I was. I think I was probably about seven or eight years old. And two men took me dove hunting. I don't really remember many details of the hunt, but there's one detail towards the end that I do remember. The men who took me had shot too many birds for the limit for that day. And across the field from where we were, they saw the law coming. They saw the one who could give them a ticket if they had broken the law. Wildlife enforcement. And so in those moments between him getting to us, the two men spoke to me and said, Jim, you've got to tell them that you shot some of these birds. Otherwise, we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to have to go to court. We're going to have to pay a fine. Just tell them you shot, you know, you shot a few birds, a half dozen birds or something. So as a young boy, I'm in turmoil now, right? What do I do under such pressure? I want to please these men. I want to, to do what they've instructed me to do. I, want to, to please. I don't want them to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble with them. And just my own personality used to know I like to please other people. That's a temptation that I have. So there was so much pressure on me in that moment. I knew he was coming, and I knew I should tell the truth, but I also had this competing pressure. It just it weighed like a huge weight on my shoulders. And I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that, where you, had, you were in conflict. You were pressured to do one thing or to say one thing, and yet the alternative was potential conflict or trouble or pain of some sort. You knew that it wasn't going to turn out good either way. Maybe you have been tempted in your job to, to lie to cover someone else or to cover yourself, and you didn't want to deal with the consequences of of telling the truth, or maybe it was in an instance with your friends and they were pressuring you to, to say one thing or to join with them in something and you knew the right thing to do, but you also knew you didn't want to, you didn't want to go that route because of the consequences which would follow. Maybe you've been under that same pressure. Well, in our text today, Jesus, we could say, was under something of that nature himself. He was facing a certain pressure to either tell the truth of who he was and of what God had called him as the Messiah to do or to, to let things slide and to explain himself or to defend himself in a way which would diffuse the situation. There would be no trouble. There would be no conflict. All would be well. And he could continue healing people. He could continue teaching without reproach, without persecution. But Jesus did not buckle under the pressure. He didn't cave in to the pressure of those who would seek to suppress the truth. He was the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness could never overcome it. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus has an opportunity to diffuse a conflict, and he chooses not to do so. 
you, you might could look at what he does and say that that actually inflamed the conflict even more. What are you doing, Jesus? Here's what we could say about the claims of Jesus. They were exclusive in nature. They necessarily excluded other truths and other truths that made the Jewish leaders angry. The exclusive nature of the claims of Christ got him in trouble. And more than likely, they will get you in trouble too. The main idea for our sermon this morning is because Jesus made himself equal with God by his words and by his actions, the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. They began seeking to put him to death, all the more because of what he said and because of what he did. I want to give you a broad, I've, I've given this before, but a broad structure of the book of John would be to look at the first 12 chapters and one commentator, Raymond Brown, has called this the book of signs. If you look through chapters 1 through 12, you see this particular word, signs, 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 signs. He's performing signs. People are looking for signs. People believe because of the signs. People don't believe because of the signs. All throughout chapters 1 through 12, there's this word that comes up again and again, the signs, the book of signs, where Jesus is demonstrating that he is who he claims to be. His signs are a confirmation that he is the Messiah who has come to rescue God's people, to set things right again, to reverse the curse of this world. And then in chapter 13 and following, you don't see the word signs again until towards the very end of the book. It, you can see just from the vocabulary that, that is used that John is doing something in particular. Raymond Brown calls chapters 13 through the end of the book, the book of glory. Specifically, the book of glory in which Jesus Christ is lifted up in the cross to die on behalf of sinners. That is a glorious thing, is it not? That is all our hope. That's all of our righteousness. So from chapters 13 onward, Jesus is moving towards the cross. He's teaching about the cross. He's teaching his disciples what will happen after he dies and is resurrected and then leaves them on their own. The book of signs, chapters 1 through 12, and the book of glory, chapters 13 through the end. Well, I mentioned last time that Verse, uh, chapters four and, in chapters 4 and 5, there is a transition taking place. And the transition we see in this passage is we see the first open hostility towards Jesus. Up to this point, we, we've seen a little tension there when Jesus claims that he is the temple. He's the true temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. There's tension there. And yet there's no open hostility from the Jews. And yet we come to chapter 5. There is open hostility. They begin persecuting Jesus. And they begin seeking to kill him. Because of what he says and because of what he does, Jesus must die. And so from chapters 5 through 12, we see this increasing tension between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders. Our passage starts off in verse 1 with the feast of the Jews, a feast of the Jews. We're not exactly sure what feast this is, but John is doing something in chapters 5 through 7 in particular, but also through in chapters 5 through 12. In 
chapters 5 through 7, you see this phrase come up again and again, a feast of the Jews. He is, John is arranging his material to show us instances where Jesus did something or said something or taught something in the context of these Jewish feasts because in response to his teachings and works, there is this increasing anger of the Jewish authorities towards Jesus. This intensification of the conflict between Jesus and the Jews. Now, I should have said at the beginning of the sermon, I want to give you the structure of the sermon because I don't want you to get surprised when I give you the first kind of point because that's going to come towards the end of the sermon. We're going to walk through the the passage together in kind of a verse-by-verse exposition of it. Some people say that's not exposition. It is. Just look at our church fathers and some of the reformers. And they sometimes just preached verse by verse through the text. Uh, So we're going to walk through the text, uh, explaining each part of it. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to give you a few truths along with applications of what I think this text is speaking about and some particular things, kind of most central to the point of the text that we can take with us. So the context is in the Feast of the Jews. You see this phrase in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 2. Then you even see it in chapter 10, verse 22, and in chapter 11, verse 55. These feasts of the Jews where this tension, this this, uh, conflict is building more and more between Jesus and the Jews. The author describes the setting of this healing. It's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. There is a pool. So this, you might imagine that this would be a place where The shepherds brought their sheep into the city, uh, perhaps getting uh, getting water. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. And it has five roofed roofed colonnades or or porches. So you can imagine the scene of these porches surrounding a, a small body of water, a small pool. And in these lay a multitude of invalids. It's a, a general term for those who are unwell, those who are, are not whole, blind, lame, paralyzed. So you can imagine a, a crowd of people. Where, where do you go where there's a crowd of people? The first place I think of is Chick-fil-A. If you go to Chick-fil-A in Wake Forest, there's just a mass of people if you go at the, if you go at the certain times. There's a mass of people. So imagine the crowd at Chick-fil-A or some other place where you go. There's this crowd of people. Now imagine if everybody there is unwell. They can't walk well or they're blind or they're, they're sick. This is the image that we have in our minds that John is giving us. This, this mass of people, this multitude of people, of sick people. Now, most of you would turn the other way and, and go because you didn't want to get sick. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to, to get what they had. And in the midst of this multitude, the author zooms in on one individual. This is as if you're watching a TV show and you see a... a a crowd of people in the streets, and then the, the camera zooms in on one individual, and that's the focus of the show. That's the subject that you're going to be looking at. Well, one man was there who had been an invalid. That is, he had been unwell. He had been weak. It's, a, it's kind of a, a vague term. He had been weak. He had had a weakness for 38 years. 
I am 40 years old. So imagine you're, he must, who knows how old he was, more than 38. He had been sick for 38 years. He had been unwell for 38 years. And therefore, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had already been there a long time and he spoke to him. Jesus, not only does the author zoom in on this particular man, Jesus, out of all the mass of sick individuals, he zooms in on this one man. And I think it is implied here, it's, it's not explicit, it's implicit, that Jesus had compassion on him. He looked on him with compassion. He knew he had already been there a long time. He was waiting. He was desiring to be healed. This seems to come from Jesus' omniscient knowledge of the situation. He knew this man. He knew his situation. He knew what he had been through. He knew he had been waiting at the pool a long time. So he, said, he speaks to him, do you want to be healed? That word is, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole again? There was something lacking in him. There was a physical ailment which caused him to not be well. And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, you, I don't know if you noticed, but look back at verses 3 and 4. Raise your hand if you see verse 4. Some of you are raising your hand. Some of you probably aren't raising your hand. Because in most modern versions, it goes verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. How many of you, your, your version does that? It just skips from verse 3 to verse 5. So what's going on there? Well, it has to do with something called uh, textual criticism. Have you ever heard the term textual criticism before? What textual criticism does is it tries to identify what was in the original copy of what was written here. What was a long, long, long time ago, when this was originally written, what was there and what wasn't there? There are thousands of manuscripts, that is, copies of the book of John. Some of them include verse 4 and some of them don't. And so how do you find out, well, is it supposed to be there or is it not? Well, one way, one thing you do is you go back to the oldest manuscripts, right? You want to find what was there closest to the original writing. If, if you find that in the oldest manuscripts, verse 4 is not included and it only appears later, well, then you would probably probably conclude it's likely that it wasn't a part of the original manuscript. And that's part of what happened with this particular verse. If you turn over to chapter 8 of John as well, we have the same sort of thing. We'll, we'll see that as well. In chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, chapter 11, yours probably includes it, but it has brackets around it. Do you see that? That's the similar sort of thing. It's, you go back to the oldest manuscripts is one way. There are a variety of ways to determine what, what was it that was actually written when John wrote it. Because we want to know what John wrote. We want to know what was original, not was, what was added perhaps later. And by and large, we have, uh, we've come up with, the scholars have come up with 99.9% of the original manuscripts. We are 
basically certain of the manuscripts. There are some difficulties, some questions, but even those are usually related to things not central to particular uh, the, the foundational doctrines of Christ. Well, that's what we have here in chapter 5, verse 4. That's what's going on. And it makes sense, right? Because you look at verse 7, and it's hard to make sense of what the man says. He, he has this hope of getting into the water when it is stirred up, when it's troubled, right? What, what does that refer to? Well, perhaps a scribe sometime later, or perhaps kind of the idea near the time was, the water gets stirred up, there's some underwater spring, and there's some special healing properties in the water. Apparently, the, all the sick people there must have thought there was some therapeutic value to the waters because they're all there. They're all gathered to this particular place where they can get in the water. And this man wants to get in the water first when it is stirred up. But he can't do it. He is, he is not so sick that he can't get there, but he's so sick that he can't get there quickly. And someone jumps in front of him while he's going down. You see the man's hope then. Jesus asks him, do you want to be whole again? And he says, I want to, but I can't get to the water. This was his hope to be well. This was his, his hope to become whole again. And we might ask ourselves, what, what is our hope? of becoming well? What is our hope of becoming cleansed? What is our hope of becoming whole again? And to that we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This man needs Jesus, but he thinks there's something else that he needs that will make him whole. And so Jesus speaks to him yet again, and he says, get up. Three imperatives, three commands. Get up. Take your, up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Remember last time we saw the story where Jesus heals an official son and he, what does he say? He says, your son lives. And in an instant, the very moment he said your son lives, his son lives. This is the power of Jesus's words once again and we see a similar refrain that we saw last time too do you notice that jesus says in verse 8 get up take up your bed and walk at once the man was healed he took up his bed and walked verse 11 the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk they asked him who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk the words of jesus are echoing throughout this passage because john wants us to see the power of jesus's word he speaks and it happens as he goes on and defends himself we'll see next time look at verse 28 this look at the power of the voice of the son of god do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you, brothers and sisters, have been made new, it's because Jesus spoke to you. Come forth from the grave. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. Come forth, become alive, look to me, and you responded instantly because of the power of Jesus' word in saving you, because of the power of the gospel that was preached to you. We shouldn't get over 
the power of Jesus' word in this. And yet, we see in the, the latter part of verse 9 what the main point of what I take these paragraphs to be about. John gives us an aside and says, Now that day was the Sabbath. I think this is key to understanding this passage, verses 1 through 18, and really the, the whole chapter. Did you notice there's, in some miracles, it's about the person's faith. So Jesus is calling them to faith. You don't see anything of faith in this man. There's no, there's no faith on the front end. There's no faith afterwards. There's no response of gratitude. There's, there's nothing of that. In other instances, in miracles, Jesus' compassion is explicitly uh, referred to by the author. It's not so here. It is implicit, but it's not explicit. The one thing that is explicit that John makes clear is when this took place and what happened as a result of it taking place. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, that is not just all the Jews, but the Jewish leaders in particular, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's not it's not right. It's not permitted for you to do this. But he answered them, The man who made me whole, there's that word again, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And what's their response? They ask him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now what is the question they should have asked in that instance? What sort of thing should they have been consumed with when the man said to them, the man who healed me, he's the one who told me to take up my bed and walk. What? You've been healed? You were sick for 38 years, and all of a sudden you took up your mat and began walking? Who is this man so that we can bow down before him and worship him? Who is, who is he so that we can be made whole? But what consumes them is not compassion, for the man, nor the glory of Christ, what consumes them is compliance with their own man-made rules. They're determined to find out who is instructing people to disregard this tradition that we have, the Sabbath, and the particular ways we have made application to the Sabbath. Who is this man who is telling people to disobey us, to disregard the sabbath the man didn't know who it was for it was G for jesus had slipped through the crowd it was a crowded place jesus was able to get out of there without being noticed but afterwards jesus finds him in the temple and look at what he says to him this is a difficult verse this is a difficult passage he says look you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. First thing you should notice, though, is where this took place. It took place in the temple. The man who was sick for 38 years, he hadn't been able to go in the temple because of his sickness, because he was unwell, because something was missing. He was not whole. And now, as soon as he is healed, he's able to go to the temple to commune with God, to worship God, to be with God. That's what Jesus sets us free to do, to be with God. He's in the temple. But Jesus says, look, you're well. 
Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we might look at that sentence of Jesus and conclude, therefore, all trials that we face, all sickness that we have, if you get a cold, if you get the flu this season, it is caused by some sin in your life. And what you need to do is repent of that sin and then you'll get better. Some might conclude that from this passage. It seems somewhat reasonable, right? Jesus says, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. So Jesus in his omniscience, I believe, is linking this man's particular illness to a particular sin. However, it's not always the case. Because if you flip over to chapter 7, in verse 1... Oh, excuse me, uh, chapter 9, John chapter 9. We read this, as, a, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So if it was the case that all trials, all sickness were directly related to a sin, this would be an opportunity for Jesus to further elaborate on that. But Jesus answers and says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. A few chapters later, when Lazarus is sick, Jesus says, This is happening for the glory of God. So chapter 9 and Chapters 11 and 12 teach us that not every sin and not every trial is connected to a particular sin. But this passage does seem to teach this along with in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, this is why some of you are sick or have died because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way, not considering the body of Christ. He's connecting their sickness or their death with their sin in the Lord's Supper. Well, what do we do with that? That seems frightening, doesn't it? Well, I think one thing we should do with that is we should not be so materialistic as our culture as to think nothing spiritual is going on and that there's no interaction between the spiritual and the physical. Right? We are whole beings, body and soul. We, we're not just biological creatures. We are not just... We can't just be defined by the material that makes us up. It's all intertwined. The spiritual and the physical, the biological, the soul, these things are intertwined with one another. So we, we, should, uh, we should probably take a step back and recognize the ways perhaps we've been influenced sometimes by our own culture and their materialistic view of things. And yet, we cannot, we do not have the omniscience of Jesus to be able to make a link to play that connect the dots game or the matching game and say, this sickness goes with this sin and this sickness goes with this sin. This trial goes with that particular misdeed. We, we don't have the omniscience of Jesus to know that or to know if that is the case. And so we are content to, to leave the secret things in the mind of God, and we are content to let every trial move us back to our desperate need for a Savior. 
We, are, we let every trial push us, drive us back to Jesus Christ who can save us and cleanse us and make us whole again. I was corrected in a really good way when I was in Africa in 1998 and I was sick with malaria. And the first thing I wanted to do was get some pills to make me better. And my African brothers and sisters said, let's circle around and let's pray first. They knew they were completely dependent upon God for their lives and for mine. And my dependence was directed more towards this medicine is what I need. I know that will make me well. And they said, wait, first, we are dependent upon God. They're not opposed to one another. And yet we can mistakenly put all of our hope in the scientific means that we know can make us whole again. When what we need to do first is remember it is Christ who makes us whole. It is Christ we are desperate for. It is Christ you need, brothers and sisters, for your trials, for your difficulties, for your tribulations, for your sin. Turn to Christ and receive life. Receive wholeness again. Well, the man goes away and reports to the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Thanks a lot, right? <laughs> he goes immediately and reports to the Jews. We don't know his motive in this. We don't know if he was trying to tell on Jesus or if he was trying to say, you ought to worship this guy and submit to him. But regardless, he goes and reports to the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him. And then in verses 16, 17, and 18, we have, again, what I think, center in on the main points of this passage. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Okay, they were persecuting him. They are insulting him. They are saying bad things to him and about him. They are trying to harm him. They begin persecuting him openly. This is the first instance in John where we see this open hostility because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not only this instance, John says, but there were other things like it he was doing on the Sabbath. This is why they began persecuting him. This is why they wanted to harm him. But Jesus answered them. Jesus gives a defense. And he says, my father is working until now and I am working too. In other words, my father is working on the Sabbath. He's working. He's working Sunday through Friday, and he's working until now as well. Jesus and the Jews both knew that if God were to cease holding together the universe, it would disintegrate like sand falling through your fingers. If God ceased to work, we would cease to exist. He holds you together. He holds your body together. He holds you together. You are in His hands. Your life depends on Him working to keep you alive, to give you your next breath, to wake you up in the morning. My Father's working till now, and I am working. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't give a defense of Himself in a way that would diffuse the conflict, but rather one which inflamed it even more. He could have perhaps said, no, you misunderstand. I'm not really breaking the Sabbath. You see, you misunderstood the teaching about the Sabbath, 
and I'm doing really what's in line with the Sabbath. You're just misunderstanding. Couldn't Jesus have done that? And he could have, he could have quashed the dispute. He could have made the conflict die down. But he doesn't. Instead, he equates himself with God. He says, God can work on the Sabbath. God is working on the Sabbath. And I am like God in that I am working on the Sabbath. He had an opportunity to speak something less than the truth in order to make the conflict die down. But instead, he speaks the truth about who he is, his own identity, and what he has come to do. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more, not only to persecute him, but to kill him. Jesus must die. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath or destroying the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, his unique father, making himself equal with God. He was claiming a unique relationship with God that they didn't have. You see, we can all say, in a sense, God is my father. Christians, we say, God is my father. There's a sense when, in which even unbelievers can say, God is my father and that he created me. He is the owner of me. He, he made me. And yet Jesus is saying something that offends them because he's claiming a unique relationship with him. When I was at home uh, as a child with my brother and three sisters, we might, the, as the day was getting longer and we knew our mother was going to be coming home, we might would say, we need to clean up. Mom's going to get here soon. and She's going to be mad if it's not cleaned up. Our mother will be home soon. We've got to urgently get things done. What if I would have said instead, siblings, my mother is coming home. What does that say? It's claiming a unique relationship between me and my mother that they don't have. My mother is coming home and you need to clean up. Well, Jesus here is saying, my father. He's not your father. He's my father, is working until now. And I am like my father, and I'm working too. He claims a unique relationship with God. He is even calling God his own unique father, making himself equal with God. Now, some might read this and say, well, Jesus didn't himself make, him, didn't make himself equal with God. That was just a Jewish misunderstanding of what Jesus was teaching. Some of our friends who are Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses might would claim that. They claim that Jesus is not equal with the almighty sovereign God of the universe. They claim a subservient position, a lower position. He is not equal with God, they would say. And they might would look at this passage and say, see, he's not claiming to be equal with God. He, that's just the Jewish misunderstanding. But if you continue to read verses 19 and on, onward, his relationship with the Father, you can conclude nothing else if you continue reading through the rest of the book. If you've read the first four chapters already, you know what John thinks. He is the Son of God. He is God Almighty. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created all things. Nothing has come into existence apart from His work. This is the sovereign God. Jesus is equal with God. And John is proclaiming that to us in this verse. So we see it's because Jesus made himself equal with God in what he did and in what he said 
that the Jewish leaders sought to persecute him and to kill him. We've considered a couple of truths and applications through this. Let me whittle it down for you and give you three truths and applications along with it. From the least central to the main point of the text to the most central of the text. First, personal applications to God's law aren't the same thing as God's law. Do you understand that? Personal applications of God's law aren't the same thing as God's law. So the Jews said to the man who picked up his mat and carried it, you're not permitted to do this because it is the Sabbath. That may have been a a personal application that they had made concerning the law of the Sabbath, and yet it went beyond the original intention of the Sabbath. They made their own application equal with God's law. They lifted up their own application of God's law to God's law. Not just you can't go about your business and do your regular work on the Sabbath. You can't can't carry your mat after you've been healed by the Son of God. You can't do anything like that. And so one, one lesson we ought to draw from this is we ought to be very careful about setting up our own applications of God's law as the law of God. The scripture tells us not to to lust after anyone else. And so as a precaution against illicit images or pornography, maybe you set up a personal application to help you with keeping that rule of God, that law of God. And you say, maybe you say, I'm not going to use a computer at all. I'm not going to use my, my smartphone. I'm going to avoid those things because I know it will be good for me. You set up certain precautions. It's not wrong to do that. It's wise in some cases to do that. And yet, the moment you begin to say to your brother, you can't, you can't, look, you can't use a smartphone. You can't use a computer. It could happen in any, any number of things. It could happen with greed or materialism. You should, do, you should write yourself a note and consider what are some personal applications to God's law that I set up as God's standard for everyone. Because when you do that, it leads to self-righteousness. Because others aren't keeping the law the way you think they should keep it. And that leads us to our second truth that I want you to see. Self-righteousness blinds us to the truth truths of God. Self-righteousness blinds us to certain truths of God. Notice in the story what the Jewish leaders' self-righteousness blinded them to. It blinded them to compassion on this man. They just wanted to know who told you to break the law. They had no concern, no care that he was sick and had been made well. They completely lose sight of that because they're so focused in on other people keeping compliant with their own rules. Our self-righteousness can blind us to compassion on others. But consider also how our self-righteousness might blind us to sinful people and having compassion on sinful people. Did you notice this? That Jesus in his omniscience was able to connect this man's sin, this man's sickness with his sin. He knew 
definitively, this man is sick because of what he did right here. He sinned in this way. It resulted in his sickness. And he chose to have compassion on him anyway. What sinners do you see that cause you to shrink back from showing them them compassion? Maybe you see those who are caught up in sexual sin, in homosexuality, or adultery, or some other sexual sin, and you, you not only judge them, but their sin causes you to not show compassion on them. Or those who have entered our country illegally. They've, by the law, they've broken the law. You might say they've sinned in some way, and that causes you to shrink back from having compassion on such a person. Or you know someone who is a racist person. You've heard them say words, you've seen them do things, and you know that they are racist, and yet, when it, when it comes to having compassion on them, you will hold back because of their sin. What does it say that Jesus knew this man's sin inside and out, and he still ha- chose to have compassion on him? What does it say about Jesus that he saw you inside and out? Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will ever commit, and he still chose you out of the masses and said, I am going to have compassion on you, a sinner. What an amazing and mysterious thing is the compassion of our God. He had compassion on you while you were still a sinner, while you were in the midst of your very sin. He loved you and spoke a word to you which gave you life. And it's by his persecution here, which led to his death, where he would not only have compassion on you and love you, he laid his very life down for you. That demonstrates the love of God for sinners. He sacrificed himself that you would have life eternal, that you would be whole, that you would be forgiven, that you would be clean. And now you will not have compassion on another sinner? Well, consider also that self-righteousness blinds us not only to the compassion we ought to show to others, but also our need of Christ. They were blinded, the Jewish leaders, to their need of Jesus Christ. He was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their leadership. He was a threat to their religious way of doing things. The third truth I want you to see is the one I think that centers most on the the central theme of the text. The exclusive claims of Jesus are intolerable to the world. The world meaning those who are opposed to Christ, to God, but they are the only truths that can ever save anyone. The exclusive claims of Jesus are intolerable to the world, but they are the only truths that can save anyone. The people of Jesus' times, they loved Jesus' signs. He worked miracles and they rejoiced at being filled with food and seeing people get healed. His works of love were celebrated. Perhaps even his teachings, some of his teachings about being kind, these wisdom teachings, they were embraced and people were encouraged by them. But when it came time for him to say that he was equal with God, that there was 
no other way of salvation except through the Father, well, that's when people got angry. That's when he was no longer tolerable. And the same is true for you and me, brothers and sisters. You, you may have heard it, the illustration given before, and I think it can be a good one, but it needs a little more nuance. What if your church packed up and left the neighborhood today? Would the community miss it? And by that, they mean, do you, do you demonstrate the love of Christ to your community? And I, w- I want us to be that church. I want us to show love to the community, to our partnership with Roseville Elementary and others. I want us to show the love of Christ to others. But that is not the only measurement of faithfulness. There's a, there are churches in China where if they packed up and, and moved out, people would be very happy that they moved up. They wouldn't miss them one bit. There are churches in other places around the world that are being persecuted, that if they shut down, people would rejoice that they had been silenced. People will love our good works. We should do them. People will love our good teachings about being kind to one another and loving others and being generous and showing hospitality. But the moment we begin speaking exclusive claims about Jesus Christ, we may be deemed intolerable. By claiming to be a Christian, you are claiming a unique relationship with God Almighty. What are you saying? That you know God better than I do? I try to follow Him as well. I try to to live a good life. I try to do what is right. And you're saying you know God more than I do? And we are claiming that relationship. We are claiming a unique relationship. But it is nothing in us. It's no merit of our own. It's not because we were smarter or wiser. It's not because we were better or more, more worthy. It is all because of God's grace to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you saying that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? He couldn't possibly be the only way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is not a way, a truth, a life. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the way. Brothers and sisters, do you believe these exclusive claims of Jesus Christ that he is your only hope? There is no other way to be whole. There's no other way to be healed. It is only through Jesus Christ and his work for you that you will have life. Do you believe it? We must believe it, and then we must also embrace it. In other words, when the moment comes for you to speak the truth about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, what will you say? I'm not really a doom and gloom kind of guy, but the evidence in our culture does point to increasing pressure on Christians to say things that are appealing and tolerable to the culture. There may come a day, maybe not in our lives, adults, but children and teenagers, there may come a day in your life when it will not be tolerated for you to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. In fact, it's probably more likely for you than us, but it, it may be us, brothers and sisters, as well. But teenagers, children, 
What will you say when that time comes when you're 50 years old and you're called to account for what you believe about Jesus Christ? What will you say? Our brothers and sisters in China and other places are being persecuted. There's been greater crackdown in China over the last year than has happened in many years. Just in December, Pastor Wang, pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in China, was arrested along with 100 members of his church. He was arrested and he released a statement. He, was, he instructed his church to release a statement. If I've been in prison more than two days, release this statement. And it was a statement that he is not going to stop proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. He says, I, I do not oppose the government in order that we would change any laws. This is what we would want to do as Americans, right? We wouldn't want to flex our, our muscle to get our rights. He says, I do not do that for this reason. I do that only to give a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his faithfulness. In his moment of pressure, he is standing up and proclaiming the truth of God. Maybe you were wondering what I did when I was a young boy in the field. The time came for me to speak. Would I speak the truth? No, I didn't shoot any birds. Or would I cave into the pressure and say, yeah, I shot a few of them. Well, I took the third route and I said, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I, was, I felt like I was caught between the truth and consequences. But what will you say, brothers and sisters, when that time comes, when you're meeting with a neighbor and you feel the pressure, you feel the pinch? We just, I don't know. We, we take the third path. Will you, will you cave into the pressure and let the moment go when you sense an appropriate time to speak truth? Well, the reason that you can have the strength to speak at the appropriate time of Christ and his work is not because it's within you, but because of Christ. Because he did it all the way to the very death, because he did it, which resulted in his death, and then he rose from the dead, and then he poured out his spirit in you, brothers and sisters. That's why you can have the boldness to speak of the exclusivity of Christ. You can speak with boldness because of Christ and what he's done, because you belong to him and he lives within you. It won't be, it won't be your own work, it will be God's grace within you. Let's pray and ask God that he would not only make us believe fervently these claims of Christ, but we would be ready to speak them to others.